The power to hurt is a kind of wealth. It sits like a tall stack of chips at a poker table. A player may never need to spend that wealth for it to take its toll, to squeeze others until they have nothing left. Letting go of the power to hurt, accepting the personal risk of sharing the wealth, that is how we embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time, the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling, and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 100 of Embrace the Void. We fucking made it. Woo! And we're celebrating with the thing we do every week. A depressing conversation with an interesting person. Yay! I did mark the occasion with a little bit of something special. Our Void merch is now available internationally. So head on over to voidpod.com and get yourself some fancy Void merch to celebrate our centennial. Uh, our guest this week is a longtime philosophy Twitter friend who is one of many dealing with some absurd shenanigans in the academic philosophy world. There is a lot to cover, so let's get shenaniganing. My guest this week is Nathan... Osaroff Spicer? Yeah, that's right. Philosopher. <laughs> okay, I got it. Wee! I almost never get it right. Philosopher of science and epistemology and recent invading immigrant of England. Um, Nathan, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Wonderful. It's nice to finally get to meet you face to face. I feel like we've been Twittering back and forth forever now. Yeah, it's always great seeing you show up on my timeline. <laughs> Um, the when I first interacted with Nathan, I think was when you were working on the APA blog, and you messaged me out of the blue to see if I could do a piece about public philosophy and the podcast, um, which I really appreciated. Did you want to maybe say a little bit about? I know you're not there anymore, but sort of the work that you were doing with the uh, the APA blog and public philosophy. Absolutely, I cannot speak any higher in appreciation for the APA blog or American Philosophical Association blog. Uh, it's run by a bunch of really great people. Uh, at the top is Sky Clary. And sort of when I started working there about a year ago, uh, I had it in my head that I thought it would be a really good idea to really push for public philosophy and, and trying to get in touch with all these people who are doing stuff, uh, usually uh, without any prompting and outside the usual uh, domains of what is considered appropriate in academic philosophy in order to make philosophy more acceptable mm -hmm. uh, and accessible to everyone uh, who isn't an academic philosopher. So I started making a very big list of both very fairly small uh, up, uh, starting uh, 
podcasts and some fairly big ones. Mm-hmm. And then I sent out a lot of emails. And mm-hmm. uh, I think it ran for just about a year straight. Uh, we had one break over the Christmas season of uh, one week, but it ran every week on Wednesdays at uh, 11 o'clock. And uh, I was very proud uh, doing that because I was really able to meet a lot of great people such as yourself. Yeah, how was your response rate? How many people do you feel like emailed back out of all the emails you sent out? Uh, There are maybe two or three podcasts that never got back in touch with me after initial contact Mm -hmm. and expressing interest. I won't mention their names. Uh, (laughs) I think that... We're not trying to stir anything around Yeah, Uh, I'm not here for drama. Not yet, yet, at least. We'll we'll do the drama in the next... We'll do that in the B segment. Uh, Um, But I I found it really interesting how many different ways there were of doing public philosophy uh, throughout mm-hmm. uh, the whole series, just contacting and, and being in, reading through all these pieces. Uh, everyone was very interested in just making philosophy more acceptable and, and making it sort of something that we can all talk about. So I think that mm-hmm. was great. Do you feel like there's a bit of a bit of a generational thing to that, that like the sort of our generation and the generation a little bit before ours of philosophers who I think, I mean, I was raised on like, there's this war between sort of public philosophy and academic philosophy in a sense. And that like accessibility as a concept is a bit of a, a a problematic term for some people. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's like the exact same stuff that happened uh, with uh, Gould, Stephen Jay Gould and his work on uh, doing public science back in the Mm seventies. So uh, a lot of other scientists, uh, him and Richard Feynman, for example, uh, they were subject to a lot of uh, scrutiny from other scientists because they were sort of simplifying things, uh, making it more accessible to people outside of uh, academic science. So mm-hmm. I think probably something similar is going on today uh, within uh, academic philosophy. Although, luckily, uh, <laughs> things I think may be changing with uh, the podcast format. Uh, people used to say that dropping a guitar down a flight of stairs and it would play uh, Lola. But I think if you drop a laptop down a flight of stairs, if it doesn't break, you'll have a podcast by the end. Yeah. Oh, God, New York Times just put out an article today about this, actually. There's something like 700,000 podcasts <laughs> out there right now. It's like this ridiculous bubble. But on the other hand, like only 20% of them update or stick around. So I think it's, you know, it's like a thing because it has a low threshold for getting involved that it, there there has been this, like blogs, right? oh, yeah. there's this giant boom of them. And then like it has filtered out over time, but it hasn't gone away, it seems like. I think hopefully it'll mellow into like something that people want to do when they have really a, a genuine reason to do it um, rather than just, you know, let's let's turn on the recording device and, and just start talking. Yeah, something like Embrace the Void. Something, some sort of cheap hook by yeah. which to pull people into talking about philosophy. Um, so before we get too far into the um, uh, shade throwing within academic philosophy, I did want to talk a little bit about your uh, personal interests and specializations within uh, philosophy. I feel like it's unfair just to just to dive right into uh, uh, shit talking. But um, so yeah, so you're interested. Your 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 focus is in uh, philosophy of science and epistemology. What what in particular within that do you do you find really interesting? So what really got me interested in philosophy of science started in high school. Believe it or not, uh, I took an interesting class uh, 
by a student of Karl Popper, actually, uh, by the mm -hmm. name of Rosenblatt. He had done a master's over at the LSE back in the 1970s, went over to the United States, and ended up as a high school teacher. And in that class, one of the assigned readings was uh, Popper's uh, 1959 translation of his first German book, The Logic of Scientific Discovery. Reading through it, and I thought, wow, this is one of the most wild things I ever thought of, like thinking about methodology in the sciences, what distinguishes science from pseudoscience or non-science. Uh, can we sort of carve disciplines into different uh, groups? Are there, is it appropriate to do this? Uh, these sort of mm -hmm. questions really sort of got into me, uh, things like the problem of induction. And then from there, it sort of uh, grew into me going off to college uh, over at uh, Oberlin, in which I had a little job working in the audiovisual department and spent every last dime I had picking up used copies of pretty much Every philosophy of science and epistemology book I could get my hands on, probably from the mid-60s to the mid-80s, uh, read them all. Uh, don't think I paid wow. too much attention uh, in my <laughs> philosophy classes, I gotta say. I've, I just sort of fell in love with philosophy, but not so much on anything that really happened after the, the mid-90s or so. Uh, so mm -hmm. that was me all throughout uh, undergrad. Uh, then after mm -hmm. that... Uh, decided I thought I might as well do a master's in philosophy, so went over uh, to University College London. I had to get out of the United States for political reasons, mainly because... <laughs> I can't... Uh, I, what do you mean? Uh, even back <laughs> in the day, I kind of have uh, moral uh, opinions about the United States, and I felt uh, I had to get out. Uh, <laughs> so that that explains the green card marriage, then? Uh, well, I... I certainly wouldn't say that, and my partner would object to that With absolute respect to your wonderful partner, absolutely. who of course I hope knows that I am joking, yes. and who I would also love to get on the podcast yes. at some point. Yeah, I think they'd Speaking as, as one green card marriage older <laughs> to another. Yeah. Uh, so after that, I focused on more philosophy of science, really, over at uh, University College London. Uh, did a, what was it, a thesis on epistemic counterclosure, uh, which I could talk about that for hours, but I don't think any of your listeners would actually listen <laughs> well, to well, that. Well, define the term for us, at least. What does it mean? So, epistemic counterclosure is a really interesting thing that you get with inferential knowledge. Uh, the idea with it is that, let's say, you know P. P stands for some random uh, sentence, right? You know, I know that it's raining. You know, I know it's 3.15 p.m., etc. Uh, so let's say I know that. Why do I know that? Uh, let's say you infer it from I look at my watch. My watch is usually reliable. Therefore, I know it's 3.15. But let's say this is when epistemic counterclosure comes in. Uh, let's say your watch is a few minutes slow today. You know, the battery's starting to wear down a bit. So you look at it, it's really 3.12, let's say. You believe it's 3.15. If it's 3.15, you know inferentially from that that it's not 7 in the evening, right? Mm -hmm. You're not late to your appointment at 7. So it seems like I'm believing something that's false. Namely, I believe that it's uh, 3.15, but I believe something that's true as a consequence. It seems somewhat mm. reliable. It seems like it tracks truth. There are all sorts of ways you could think about uh, 
ways of thinking about how we know things where it can satisfy a number of conditions of knowledge, but doesn't satisfy all of them, namely because uh, this basis belief that you're using to form beliefs turns out not to be true. So, mm-hmm. uh, and in my MA thesis... You get like a, is that like a Gettier problem yeah, that you get a little bit it, there? It is really similar of? to a Gettier problem. However, rather than being unjustified, it's a false mm-hmm. basis belief. Uh-huh. So there is a lot of stuff in the literature looking at the comparisons between epistemic counterclosure and Gettier. But I think uh, if you get in the nitty gritty, you know, there's some overlap, <laughs> but not quite the same. Uh-huh. Yeah. So my focus was on that's, whether that's cool. there can be uh, interesting cases by examining history of science. Uh, so oftentimes throughout history of science, a lot of scientists will say, hey, we have a theory. Based on this theory, we have a certain expectation or a prediction. And because of that, mm-hmm. uh, we actually corroborate uh, or confirm the theory to some extent because it turns out the prediction was accurate. But it's only in retrospect that it turns out that the theory was wrong. Uh, and in that case, well, did you actually know that the prediction was going to come about? So it's an interesting puzzle. Mm. I don't actually know where I sit now, uh, but I think it's something that should be more talked about, especially in history of science, whether or not it's appropriate to ascribe knowledge uh, to people who are uh-huh. operating in the past with uh, false scientific theories. Interesting. And and by extension, whether we can ascribe knowledge to ourselves living in the present yeah, with yeah. also likely to be falsified theories. Yeah, so yeah, so add that. Get into a skeptical world there. Yeah, so throw a pessimistic meta-induction on top of that. Or, uh, let me see, was it... Like you do. Yeah. Uh, P. Kyle Stanford's uh, you know, <laughs> sort of revitalization of uh, the pessimistic meta-induction and underdetermination, uh, problem of unconceived alternatives. And it's like, well, do we actually know these things, even though we're able to predict with great accuracy and do this over and over and over again, even though the theories may be false? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. Are there other like, major misconceptions about, I mean, it, my, my impression is that like the nature of science and the way people in the world mostly think about science don't really line up a lot of the time. Do you feel like there are major misconceptions that you wish could get cleared up that are like causing problems <laughs> in the modern world? Oh, yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> is that a softball? And yeah, I, I must. <laughs> yeah, I think that is. Um, so right now, over the past couple of years, I've been doing a lot of work on, uh, you might call it one of the weirdest issues going on, I think, in history of 20th century philosophy of science. Namely, nobody has any idea what anyone else is talking about. And this is percolated into the public <laughs> understanding of all sorts of problems. So... And I thought it was just me. That's good yeah. To uh, so... Primarily, my focus has been on uh, the problem of demarcation, uh, or you might want to call it the problems of demarcation. There are several. Okay, what, so do you mean like deli- like just delineating things in general? I just want to yeah. get this very, very ba- you know, very straightforward for folks who like me don't do a ton of philosophy of science. Yeah, um, like give an example, maybe. Yeah, so you might think uh, that one classic example uh, of just simply telling things apart might be chicken sexers, right? So when you're working in the factory, chickens are coming down, you look at them, you have to figure out which are classed as male, which are classed as female, and separate the two. 
And so you got some sort of criteria you're operating with. Is there something very robust behind it? Is it something fairly weak? You can do similar things with all sorts of stuff around us. We demarcate what's inside from outside, uh, what's classified as a chair from a table. We do this with all sorts of mm -hmm. categories, uh, just sorting things into sort of boundaries and saying, here, we're going to put down some boundary stones. Uh, but then the question is, for these sorts of things, can you set out some necessary and sufficient criteria? Or is it just going to be a matter of convention? Is it going to be sort of a Wittgensteinian uh, cluster concept? Uh, are there any hard and fast distinctions to be drawn or not? But within mm -hmm. philosophy of science, there's something known as the demarcation problem, or as it should be called the demarcation problems of distinguishing uh, sort of in order of specificity, are there some unifying characteristics of uh, the natural sciences? And can we distinguish them from pretenders, those things that we might call pseudoscience, or uh, just a general distinction between what scientists do as a way of being uh, good empirical inquirers uh, from mm -hmm. what you might call sort of bad inquiry or inquiry that just simply isn't at the standard necessary for it to count as a science. So that's a fairly narrow conception of what demarcation is and what a lot of people think mm -hmm. of what they hear of as the demarcation problem. There's a second demarcation problem, though, and this is where a lot of my focus has been on, namely that uh, what a lot of early 20th century philosophers of science are talking about is not that problem. So we can call this demarcation problem star. And that problem is separating out what you might want to call what's empirically significant from empirically non-significant statements or systems of statements. And I guess this makes a lot more sense in German, though, because in German, you have this phrase called empirischen Wissenschaft. It's a nice little technical term. And... Uh, uh, why do so many other words end with shaft? Yeah, it's just hard, yeah. to, hard to take seriously. But go ahead, continue. Yeah, so empiris and Wissenschaft is uh, mm -hmm. sort of a loose way of translating is empirical inquiry or investigation, sort of how you go about learning from your interactions with the world. And it can be sort of like a systematized way, a methodologicalized way of doing it. But it is much broader in scope than sort of what we would call today the natural sciences. And uh, hmm. yeah, so recently some of my work has been on how a number of these misconceptions going on where people are talking past each other throughout uh, much of 20th century philosophy of science have ended up, for example, is mm -hmm. uh, legal precedent in the United States. So... Uh, if you mm -hmm. examine what actually counts as a uh, a scientific theory in classrooms, uh, ah. turns out to be a set of criteria, which is a hodgepodge of probably about maybe four or five different bad readings of early logical empiricists <laughs> and <laughs> Karl Popper's work on falsificationism combined together okay. and applying their demarcation criteria of Wissenschaft, empiris and Wissenschaft, to the natural sciences. Uh -huh. So this is... And the danger here, right? 
this is important, right? If we want to try to determine whether or not creationism gets to be taught in classrooms, for example, yeah, right? Well, That's why fin- where the rubber yeah. meets the road here. Yeah, fingers crossed on it that they actually are not counted as uh, yeah, pseudo- uh, sciences, but maybe it's that looking at sentence level uh, criteria simply mm-hmm. doesn't work. And really what goes on in distinguishing between science and pseudoscience is far more complex than merely the status of a sentence and whether it's falsifiable or not. This would have to deal right. with, yeah, methodological concerns. Yeah, so this would be, this seems like the the first problem there that you were mentioning a little bit. Is there a good, are there good solutions to these demarcation problems? Or is this, a, this is the part where you tell me that, and there are no <laughs> solutions? Uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, my partner, <laughs> if, if you... Sometimes they'll ask me, like, am I utilitarian or a concept, yeah, or a virtue ethicist? And I'll say, yeah, it depends on the day of the week. But more or less, I'll get the same basic ethical uh, sort of obligations out of whichever meta ethical beliefs I'm holding at any one time. And I think more or less the same holds when it comes to uh, dealing with this question of whether or not there is any unifying method in the sciences. I don't know if there is, but I think it's probably best, even if there doesn't exist a unifying method, that we try to find unifying methods. Uh Because it's not like we're trying to figure out from the armchair of what is science. We're not trying to define science. It's much more of we have created a way of investigating things about the world where rather than dealing with one person, you get a couple million people to do it over the course of a couple thousand years. And uh, mm-hmm. it definitely uh, lightens the workload. <laughs> so is that, is that, I mean, like, isn't it weird that this stuff works at all, given that, like, we don't have answers to these kinds of questions that you and I are discussing here, that, like, science still manages to get rockets off the ground? Oh, yeah, I do think is it's really weird. Um <laughs> And what I I find certainly more existentially terrifying is the fact that I don't know if any of our best scientific theories are probably approximately true. So I, I'm one of those mm-hmm. uh, people. I, I would like to believe that they're probably approximately true because they've been really good, but I simply can't make that extra step. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you end, you end up in a, in a pretty dark, skeptical place there, I guess. Yeah. Uh, At least until you go back to relying on science for all the youthful things that it creates. Yeah. Uh, I, I certainly wish I had more of a, you might call it a doc, Doxinian approach, uh, where I, I'm not going to use his foul language, but he said, it works. Be words, it works. And uh, he seems very yeah. emphatic in his belief, along with many other new atheists back, uh, what, 10 years ago or so, that the fact that mm-hmm. the natural sciences were quite impressive in their ability to solve problems necessarily meant that they were probably approximately true. But you just can't mm-hmm. make that leap, or at least I don't think we should. Uh-huh. Well, that's good to know. That's a nice voidy little point for us to put on that. So maybe let's switch gears back a little bit to academic philosophy, because one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about 
it, I, I'm sort of, relatively speaking, I feel like still new to philosophy Twitter and um, sort of the wide world of, of debate around academic philosophy. And in coming to philosophy Twitter, you find sort of there are weird ongoing stories, ongoing conflicts. Um, and there's a particular one that I, I think it would be interesting for our audience to find out about. What is the situation? And I, I'm probably going to get his name wrong here too, right? Brian Leitner, right? It's, it's Leitner, right? Yeah, it's got to be Leitner. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Brian. It's good to hear. I, I hope you're listening right now. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. But yeah, uh, that is a bit of drama to get into. Maybe let's let's start by explaining who this individual is for folks who are not in academic philosophy and like don't know what the Gourmet Report is or don't know what 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 the lead up to this is all about. Uh, I think he's a guy that likes uh, Friedrich Nietzsche and uh, he mm -hmm. runs a law blog. Uh, it's uh, apparently quite influential in philosophy, and I I know that when I was just starting off uh, as an undergraduate. I believe that it was the go-to place. I simply put into Google what are you know, top grad programs out there, and uh, this one website came up. It was on TypePad, you know, fairly old, outdated, but seemed to have relevant you know, like claims to be you know, representing what the best uh, departments out there were. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was a little clickbaity, uh, you might say, and uh, a lot of it seemed to be full of drama, and apparently I've been drawn into the drama uh, more recently in the past year and a half. So it's been a little bit weird having a tenured professor uh, sort of talk about you once every couple weeks in ways that are a little rude. Yeah, so look at the, the like, the talking about, um, you know, the, pun the punching downish kind of stuff. Um, in a second, but I do think it's important for people to understand sort of the role that the the Leitner report has played in. I mean, since or, you know, I was always told I was I was taught it as the the philosophical gourmet when I was looking for grad programs, and it's exactly like what you were describing. It was it came about I think in like '89 or something, and since then has become sort of the go-to ranking for philosophy programs, uh, especially at the graduate level. And it like, there's a lot of, uh, well, it's complicated because there are some folks who really dislike it and wish that it would go away. And then I think it still holds a lot of sway as far as I can tell. I mean, um, the program that I'm teaching in is one of the top rated ones. Um, and that makes it such that I couldn't get into that PhD program, I think, if I were to try. So it, it, it has a weird sort of... Um, distorting effect i feel like on the cosmos of academic philosophy yeah i certainly agree Would with you, agree? you uh at least when uh letter was still running it which i don't think is true anymore although his sort of name is still attached to it in many ways I think he's got a co-editor yeah uh well anyway yeah so mm -hmm. uh this guy he uh Maybe we should get into the some of the drama now, I guess. Uh, yeah, so yeah, so what is, I mean, uh, what is the drama? I know a little bit of, like, there was some pushback between him and he argued some with some people who he thought were attacking him because of his views on, I think, feminism or something like that. But I really don't know a lot of the backstory because, like I said, I'm new to all of this. So what are you aware of, like, before you got pulled into this even? All I know is uh, it started... 
for me one day when uh, I had tweeted something fairly innocuous out uh, several months previously, uh, noting that the comments made by an academic philosopher in the United Kingdom was going to uh, harm or potentially harm uh, the legal uh, status of trans uh, individuals in the United Kingdom. A uh, mm -hmm. couple months later, all of a sudden, a number of prominent academics, including Leiter, uh, decided to jump on me. And I found my life uh, pretty much in tatters over the course of maybe three or four days. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, genu genuinely, like, unprovoked, you weren't, like, hating on him on Twitter or something. Oh, and, no. like, he noticed it and dug into your backstory. Like, they just, this this thing you had commented got circulated in some circle, you figured? Yeah. Um, what I do know is that um, I had uh, previous advisors when I was doing my grad program sort of reach out to me and say, hey, you might not ever want to talk about Letter on Twitter. So I would delete a tweet that mentioned him, and I don't think I'd ever engaged with him up until that point. And then, yeah, it was a large number of fairly well-established philosophers who decided to use their position of relative and privileged authority uh, and uh, sort of a, a blog to talk about this kind of stuff that was very widely read uh, to go after me. And, uh, I mean, what did they come down on you for in particular? Uh, be it's very weird actually trying to explain it. It was sure. uh, things like uh, supposed breaking the law because saying that someone who's speaking out in favor of preventing certain laws coming into effect or preventing uh, sort of speaking out against the right of trans women to go into uh, bathrooms, uh, women's bathrooms, as uh, somehow uh, breaking the law over in the United Kingdom. So... Hmm. Yeah, from uh, a law professor working in the United States who, to my knowledge, does not specialize in defamation uh, right. law in the United Kingdom, uh, I was uh, a little bit befuddled. Uh, so you moved there with uh, the risk of there being an outstanding warrant for your I, arrest? I guess. I, I've been... Uh, no one has contacted me yet, uh, <laughs> but if they do, I guess they'll be hearing from my solicitor in response. Uh, but... Yeah, it was all very odd um, what happened afterwards because then it continued to escalate. Uh, oh, yeah. I made sure not to have any contact at all uh, or mention them uh, for some time afterwards in the hopes that it would die down. But instead, it escalated to the point where uh, Lighter ended up doxing a Reddit account of mine. So. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and he published uh, a anonymous comment i had made uh revealed the name of uh the account i had run uh i had been uh one of the moderators on the philosophy subreddit and uh mm -hmm. within about 30 minutes of that i had to uh delete the account i felt really bad doing it but once you know someone does that to you uh you just have to delete it you know it was about maybe 10 years worth of comments who knew what he could say uh take out of context yeah, mm -hmm. because it was a you know anonymous account, uh, right? Yeah, were there? I mean, do you mean that in the sense of like there were things in there? I mean, do you feel like there were things in there that you would rather not have associated with you, or like you 
you are concerned about the way that someone could misrepresent those things in there and harm you. I think definitely both considering, um, <laughs> you know, there may have been a few things years ago, me talking sure. about experiences of depression. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there are a number of which personal could, which could things. impact your career, yeah. for example. Yeah. So uh, a number of things uh, just out there in the wind attached to one's name when said anonymously on a forum uh, can harm someone. And uh, Leiter found mm-hmm. one of them and uh, attempted to damage my reputation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then after that, uh, this continued on for some, I think, more months until he published uh, a weird thing, which was just demonstrably false. Uh, apparently, at the very end of it, it had a uh, phonetically spelling out in Korean uh, a fairly rude statement about uh, Brian Leiter. And I think when someone alerted him to that, he realized that he had been duped by whoever sent it in. But it was very, very strange because he claimed that he had confirmed the whole contents of the letter uh, with someone who emphatically denied it. So it's weird. Mm. Uh, so wait, so he was he was claiming that you had written this letter and were harassing uh, he, him in some way still? Uh, he claimed by publishing the letter that it revealed that I had conducted myself at my place of work in certain ways, um, uh-huh. w- which was very strange uh, considering I hadn't done all these things. Uh, but he claimed I had done that. Um, I think he issued, well, after retracting it, he did issue uh, an award for whoever, uh, finding out whoever had done this. I'm sure uh, the Chicago Police Department is on it right now. Uh, I I saw that he was um, um, consulting with his lawyer about how to copyright his uh, tweets so that no one could, now that he's gone private. Yeah. uh, He seems to be very mad that people are still quote tweeting him. Yeah. Um, I certainly wish that I had a lawyer on retainer too, and I had the self-confidence to try to copyright my tweets too. Uh, But I can say... Are there... This is. Uh, Are there other individuals who've had experiences like this? Absolutely. You know uh, yeah, I'm not going to name them here. I, I don't think it would be appropriate okay. to do so. But I, I would like to note that I think my own personal experience is only reflective, really, of something that's been going on in academic philosophy for a, a fairly long time. So I'm a cis straight white guy. The only sort of notable thing about me <laughs> is I got a couple fake teeth. Uh, really bad eyesight and I'm Jewish. Uh, okay. But there's been a lot of targeting of uh, you know, uh, women, uh, trans women and cis women, uh, early career uh, researchers and people of color. And this has mm-hmm. sort of gone on. There have been a, a lot of talk over the past couple of years uh, dealing with sexual harassment in academia and pushing out mm-hmm. people of color and uh, other members of minority groups. And so what I've faced is probably uh, fairly, I would not put it on the same level. It's been uh, not too difficult, but uh, it's certainly been a lot more public than uh, what a lot of other people have probably faced uh, in their Mm -hmm. private experiences in departments. Uh, But... Mm -hmm even then what's happened to me isn't as uh, particularly noteworthy as what's happened to other people in academic philosophy. So I, I think mm-hmm. uh, it's worth noting that it very much is part of a, 
a trend within academic philosophy uh, that's been going on for some time. Do you feel like it's getting better or worse? Do you, I mean, like, are, are the culture wars exacerbating it for certain groups? I mean, like, that's how it, that's my impression, but I'm curious. It could be. Uh, part of it could also be, uh, you might say, I'm going to steal a bit from my partner because they have much better political views than I do in their <laughs> analysis of whether or not this is intersectional work or class-based uh, approaches. So... One might think that uh, at bottom, everything bottoms out at class in your analysis. And uh, really, all these issues having to do with race, gender, sexual orientation, and so on, are just not as important as uh, bringing about proletarian revolution and so on. So I do believe there are a lot of fairly uh, older generations within academia, if there are any sort of political bent to them if they're not going to be liberal in their persuasion uh, will be the sort of leftist that isn't particularly interested in diversifying their department uh, simply because they don't see it as a priority. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, yeah, I think that that's true. And often, I mean, the most generous thing you could say is they will, they will often, I think, give the defense that like, if the ideas are good, it shouldn't matter the source um and i mean certainly i think there's some there's some reason to question if you know you're you're missing out on some good ideas because there is a lack of diversity of sources so i do, I do think it makes sense that this is sort of a larger problem though i do i mean i hope i see some departments and some parts of the world that we work in trying to shift this a little bit so i mean I'm able to find textbooks these days that include female authors, which is progress. Yeah. You know, right. Some of them even get 50%, which is amazing. Um, so, yeah. So all this being said, um, do you feel like philosophy Twitter, like tying this back to our public philosophy stuff, do you feel like philosophy Twitter is a source for good in the world or is it more of a source for evil in the world at this point? I think it definitely depends on uh, which part of philosophy Twitter we're talking about. There's a number of people on uh, Twitter who are considered by some people to be philosophers who are employed at uh, prestigious universities in the United Kingdom and abroad who uh, do not seem to spend much time doing philosophy and rather are pl uh, pushing sort of very strong political agendas. Myself, I certainly admit that I am pushing a political agenda, however... A uh, number of these people seem to be framing what they're doing as just asking questions or trying to have a philosophical discussion. I think if we just acknowledge that this is really politics rather than philosophy, uh, there's not much more they are really saying that's of particular interest. However, there are a number of people on a, a philosopher Twitter, uh, such as Liam Bright, uh, for mm -hmm. example, who I think is very notable in the work that he's done uh, in public philosophy, especially popularizing uh, Rudolf Carnap. Uh, yep. Yeah, he stands for Carnap. He does. Um, he does. Yeah. He stands hard. Yeah. And I do think there is a very good part of philosophy Twitter who really does help uh, try to bring people's attention to uh, particular interesting people in it. Um, I know I certainly try to do my best with my very bad uh, book uh, live tweets 
on occasion, which are reading just the most awful books. And usually it all descends because it's uh, my book readings focus on primarily American, uh, you might call them airplane books written by uh, far right demagogues who usually make conspiratorial claims about academic philosophy. So mm -hmm. uh, I will occasionally try best as I can to figure out what the heck they're talking about. Uh, Your Ben Shapiro's. Oh yeah, kind of Ben way. Shapiro's, yeah. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza's. Oh God. yeah, uh, yeah. You and um, I think I think Error Theorist is the one who I often see hate reading his way <laughs> through particularly horrible papers. Yeah, like uh, is it is it okay to have a sexual preference oh. for Asian women? I think was the the classic. Yeah, uh, Kirshner studies is really going off right now. Um, so if anyone's ever getting into academic uh, uh, sort of philosophy Twitter, I definitely recommend checking out Error Theorist's work on uh, Kirshner, who he writes philosophy papers. I'll leave it at that and uh, make no commentary. And they're not, they're not troll papers, right? They're I certainly do not know. Earnest, as far as we can tell, um, right? as far as hoaxes go, he hasn't broken if it's a hoax. Yeah, yet. Uh, he's got a lot of gumption. I'll put it that way. I mean, he's way more published than I am. Yeah, I absolutely. <laughs> the guy's got a great CV. Prolific. Yeah, just pages and pages of work. I just, I don't, I can't cite any of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I can cite it. That's my whole job yeah. is to cite horrifying things. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, th I think there are some outside of a number of philosophers who are, again, pushing a very strong political message and rarely engage with philosophy. There are a number of philosophers who are, also push a fairly nice uh, political message uh, who actually mm -hmm. do some really nice stuff too. So uh, definitely check mm -hmm. out, if anyone's listening, Academic Philosophy Twitter. Uh, we are kind of weird. So I do think it's a nice intersection yeah. between weird Twitter and political uh, Twitter at times. Mm -hmm. But we're always happy to explain the jokes <laughs> until they're very not funny. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, I, we're down for that. Yeah. So... Let me ask you this, um, to see if you're willing to uh, go out on any limbs here. Um, you know, a lot of the accusations, especially of us SJWs, is that we won't ever contradict the orthodoxy of our, you know, liberal pro uh, proletariat church. Um, and I'm curious, are there, is there any one thing that if you could say to your own tribe without getting canceled... What would it be? Uh, well, I think you're probably going to have to stop the tape for a second for me to collect myself. Oh, man. Oh, we can always no. just edit it back in if you need to. <laughs> yeah. Let you, me uh, think. You figure out which th which hill you want to die oh, God. on. Oh, God. There are so many hills, except if I were to say any of them, I'm probably sure I'd be dead very quick. Yeah, it would be a lot like the Alamo. It would not turn out well. <laughs> I'm uh, trying to get some listenership off your corpse here, buddy. Come oh, on. goodness. Oh, <laughs> I'll put it this way. Um, I used to be uh, um, in college a... Oh, oh it's going to be tough saying this out loud. I was uh, in the Young Republicans. And, oh, there it is. Yeah, and uh, I was the secretary of the gun club. Oh, oh there you go. Hey, yeah. you're, you're in a safe space here. I am pro-gun owner. Yeah. 
Yeah, so uh, glad I could get that out there. Um, and so, do you own a gun? No, no, I do not own a gun. Uh, oh, I guess you can't anymore yeah. because you live in England now. Uh, all, <laughs> they take them away from you. Although for a while, I did have a left-handed shotgun in the United States, which I was given. Uh, my grandfather gave it to me uh, for a birthday. Uh-huh. However, never had a chance to use it. So you were purely a philosophical gun supporter. You never actually used the gun. Oh, no. Uh, when we were at the gun club, we went skeet shooting a lot. Uh, enjoyed that immensely. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I am very much uh, against gun ownership in general, uh, especially for handguns and uh, rifles and so on. Uh, so I think as as time has gone on, I have gone more and more and more to the left and uh, when my partner hears this and uh, <laughs> gently ribs me uh, because I'm finally admitting it, uh, it's taken a few years for me to admit that I have slowly gone further and further to the left. Um, you still think it's a fundamental right, though, don't you? Uh, no. No. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to put my foot down. Uh, I, I do not think it's a fundamental right, although I do think it's a lot of fun uh, shooting guns at the range. Der- derivative right? Yeah, absolutely. More plausible. Uh, uh, yeah. I guess almost everything's a derivative right. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, I see nothing wrong <laughs> using guns for certain ends, um, but mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. many other ends, I, I find much wrong with them. Amazing. Mm-hmm. That was wonderful. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know if, if I, I really... actually stood on any hill right there other than opened up a, a closet and revealed a couple very disgusting skeletons. I mean, I assume you probably still have some lingering affection for the shooting of a gun. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, same reason I have lingering affection for many people like Michael Oakeshott and uh, Hayek. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, <laughs> okay. I like to consider myself a left Hayekian in many ways. Although I find uh-huh. it very difficult to articulate what exactly that is. Yeah, I'm going to get a lot of ribbing on Discord for this later, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. This is wonderful. I'm going to slowly move my way through philosophy Twitter and expose all the underbellies. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, it's been... Speaking yeah. of... Yeah, no, speaking of, I uh, we, we should get to our next really important philosopher segment, which is which I'm, I'm now torturing all of our philosophers with, the realism, anti-realism lightning round. Oh, okay. Uh, all right. Yeah. So the way this works, again, right, all you could say, realism or anti-realism, right, or real or not real, okay? There's no... So, you know, kids start saying social construct for everything halfway through or something like that. Ah. But, right, the upshot the upshot is you don't have to define what realism means. So you can hedge your way out of every one of these later when you want to, okay? Okay. All right, yeah, you ready? I'm ready. All right, softballs first. The external world. Real. Phenomenal consciousness. Real. Qualia. Real. Free will. Real. <laughs> I wish y'all could see the faces during ah, this. I, Selves. Ye- oh, wait. Do you, do you want to change your answer? Well, no. I just wanted to put it out there that uh, <laughs> I love Narcajuna. Okay. I love okay. Narcajuna, but at the same time, okay. I like a very large set of ontological bags that I carry with me. So continue, please. <laughs> selves yes real 
real personal identity. Ah, real. Oh. Okay, sub subcategory there, genders. Uh, real. Races. Uh, not real. Species. Real? <laughs> Morality. Uh, real. Rights. Uh, not real. <laughs> so much fun. Knowledge. Uh, real. Real? Okay. Yeah, that's real. Yeah, Modalities. Real. Uh, real. Okay. God. Uh, as in, like, the existence? Yeah, as in God. Uh, as in God. Uh, not real. Not real? Okay. Society. Ah. Oh. Oh, we live in a society. Real. <laughs> Numbers. Real. Abstract entities. Real. Chairs. Uh, real. <laughs> Science. Real. And last one. Natural laws. Real. Again, I, I have to say, I love Nargajuna. So please, okay. deflate real. <laughs> just <laughs> you're like some of my best friends are yeah. anti-realists. Just deflate real. Okay, so you're super deflationary realist on all the things. Yeah, is what I'm taking there's away very from. few things I am apparently anti-realist about. <laughs> you feel like you've, you've <sighs> learned something terrifying about yeah, yourself. Yeah, I am sweating right now. <laughs> I have these pit stains. Uh, I just keep wiping my forehead. I just oh had to God. ring I love out my how, beard. How great! This is my favorite torture. I, anyone who tells you that torture is immoral, you should just now point them towards these segments. I feel like. Yeah. <sighs> you need a you need a drink. You need a you need a little catch your breath there. Yeah, I think I'll be okay. <laughs> okay. Um, did you want to wrap anything up on any of these? Topics that we've covered. Any more hedging you might need to do after the fact before we get to um, making the void livable? Uh, no, I think uh, I covered most everything. Afterwards, I think I'm going okay. to uh, lie down, put some incense <laughs> on, do some deep breathing exercises, and really reevaluate everything I just said. Yeah, later. Later, when you're in the reeducation camps, I'm sure absolutely. You'll I'll be think first in line. About some of your choices. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Now now that we've taken you down into that abyss, what do you have for us that makes the void livable for you that you'd like to share? Uh, definitely. It's finally being here in the United Kingdom with my partner, Puck Ozeroff Spicer. I've been away from them working uh, as a researcher over at the Smithsonian uh, for the past six months, and I've only been back for about maybe three weeks I can say quality of life is much higher when you're living with the person you love. Cheers to that. Yeah. Strongly approved. Did you want to maybe complain a little bit about immigration? To oh, get that off oh yeah. Let me, uh, I don't know. This is going on for another hour and a half, right? <laughs> That's right. This was the warm up. Yeah. Act. Okay. Uh, I think it's really simple. Um, everyone seems to think that freedom of speech is some fundamental right, but I think a superseding right that uh, sort of goes in front of all other ones is the right, uh, the freedom of movement. And I think that mm -hmm. states prohibiting people from moving from one place to another, either uh, by financial or legal means or incentives, uh, is uh, 
a moral affront, and uh, we should do everything within our power to make sure that uh, not just refugees, but all individuals have the right to move wherever they wish. Which they will do soon as a result of climate change. Oh, anyway. oh yeah. There's not right, going to be so. any way to stop uh, a couple million people from crossing a border. Uh, no number of troops. And uh, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, although I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon, hopefully something happens. There's going to be some sort of change. But I do not have high hopes. So maybe leaving at that disappointing yeah. Uh, downturn at the end would probably be best. Uh, But at least you're happy with your person. That's the important thing. And I I love that uh, you took their name. I think that's very cool. I highly respect that. Um, My my wife already has several names, so I did not take all of her names. But I think that's that's an interesting uh, twist on the patriarchy you got there. Absolutely. Uh, We talked about it and probably took 30 seconds for us to both agree on it. Uh, it was not a difficult How hard choice. Was it legally, uh, it wasn't that difficult at all. Uh, really, it was uh, updating okay. my passport, and that was it. Just required to send in a birth certificate. I mean, not birth certificate, a wedding certificate, and that was it. Fair enough. Well, I will um, let you go here so that you can get back to hanging out with your wonderful person who you've been deprived from. But um, before I let you go, do you want to let folks know? Uh, where they can find any of your work at this point. Uh, sure. Uh, your Twitter handle, for example. Yeah. Uh, my Twitter handle is my old name, N-A-T-H-A-N-O-S-E-R-O-F-F. You can email me at that at gmail.com. I seriously am not going to update my Twitter handle and email address at this point in my life. I'm sorry. I'm just glad I picked a better email address than the one I had when I was 16. Uh <sighs> If you look at my Twitter handle, you'll find gun, a website. Gun nut 99. Yeah. Uh, you'll find a website on my Twitter handle, and I got an Academia EDU page. Uh, both of them, unfortunately, are out of date, and I need to do some stuff because I can't code at all. So uh, the website oh, no. probably won't load. But uh, if you're interested in seeing anything uh, I've done, drop me an email. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This was a great time. Um, And give my best to Puck. And I will see you back on the Twitters. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate this a lot. Thank you so much to everyone who makes this show possible. Uh, Thank you to my editor, Brian Ziegenhagen, and to GW for the music. And thank you to all of our listeners and especially our $20 and up patrons, including... Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence made my pussy throb. The person who controls the spice controls the void. Volunteer with Camp Quest this summer, campquest.org. Philosophy Book Club will live again. Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thanks especially to our top tier patron, Dave Maslich. Y'all, you are so amazing. Thank you for being so patient while I got the show caught up, and I promise that I will get back on patron rewards very soon. Um, If you would like to get more voidiness in your life, check us out on Twitter at ETVPod and subscribe to uh, my other show, Philosophers in Space. And also come join the Philosophers in Space Facebook group, which also serves as the Embrace the Void group. I promise you won't regret it. If you want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void. 
and the void is you. 